I will be reading Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and, uh, found, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It has been said that evangelism is not complete until the evangelized become evangelists. There's something about being a Christian that means that we're interested in souls. Soul winners for Jesus. He who would win souls is wise. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. And the thing about being an evangelist is you got to have some conviction to be an evangelist. You've got to care about what you're trying to tell somebody. And not only that, but when you're an evangelist, it shapes and molds not just the people that you're trying to talk to, but it shapes and molds you. You want to become more like Jesus? Is that really what you would like? Is that really what your heart's desire is all about? I want to be more like Jesus. If that's so, then reach out to somebody with the gospel message. Because evangelism is not complete until those who are evangelized become evangelists themselves. I want to talk to you tonight about the world's worst missionary. And the reason why he's the world's worst missionary is because he had the worst attitude about the people that he was preaching to. And that attitude persisted even after he had great success numerically. I don't know that there was a preacher in the Bible anywhere that was more successful than Jonah. An entire city repented. The king tore his clothes in Jonah chapter 3. And he declared that everybody had to wear sackcloth and ashes and, and that everybody had to fast. Jonah encouraged an entire city to repent and yet he was mad about it. So what's the story of Jonah all about? I'd like for us as we introduce this particular study, and by the way, if you don't already have your Bibles open to Jonah, go ahead and open to that short book in the Old Testament. I'd like for you to think about some things as we introduce this particular book. I'd like for you to think about the connection between Jonah and Peter in Acts chapters 10 and 11 that we talked about this morning. When Peter went to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, There are some striking similarities, and I don't believe it's an accident. I don't believe that God just made all these coincidences and, oh, isn't that interesting. There's a connection here. Think about this. Both of these men, Jonah and Peter, are Israelites. They are Jews. They are Hebrews. They are children of Abraham. They are part of the covenant people of God, and yet they're told to go preach to Gentiles. That's interesting. But more than that, they're both reluctant to do so. When God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach the message that I give to you, Jonah flees from God. When God says to Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat, what God has cleansed do not call common. On three separate occasions, Peter says, not so, Lord. I don't want to go and preach because it's always been something that I've been told shouldn't happen. Both reluctant. 
both are associated, and again, I don't believe it's coincidence, they're both associated with Joppa. Peter was in Joppa staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in Acts chapters 9 and 10 when Cornelius' servants came to find him. When Jonah was told to go preach to the Ninevites, Jonah headed for Joppa, the Bible says in in Jonah chapter 1, and Jonah got on a ship heading for Tarshish, which was about as far from Nineveh as he could get. Both are associated with Joppa, and both of these men preached with fantastic results. When they finally got around, both of these men, to giving people who were lost the message of God. And brethren, that's all we need to do. That's all God asks us to do, to take the message that he gives us and to tell other people. That's all he's asking of us. When they finally got around to doing that, they both preached with fantastic results. Again, Jonah, an entire city is converted. Peter, the first Gentile in his household, become members of the New Testament church. When we get serious about taking God's message to a lost and dying world, when we get serious about this idea that the gospel is for all, it doesn't just change the people that are lost and dying in their sin. It changes us. And maybe one of the reasons why more Christians haven't experienced the kind of transformation that the gospel says ought to be happening in our lives is because we haven't done what Jonah and Peter And all Christians are challenged to do. We haven't gotten serious about taking God's message to those who need to hear it. Who is there in your sphere of influence right now? Somebody that you know that needs to hear the message of God. Who is there in your life right now that you know is lost that you're reluctant to go and talk to them? Who is there? Evangelism's not complete until the evangelized become evangelists. And so it was with Jonah. Think about the book of Jonah just very briefly. What's the book of Jonah about? In the first place, it's one of the shorter books in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters. We read it this week, at least three chapters of it. Most of you probably went ahead and read the fourth chapter. It's only got 48 verses. It's really only got about 1,300 words. If you're a fairly fast reader, you could probably read it in about 10 minutes, maybe less. Jonah doesn't take long to read. What's Jonah about? Is it about the fish? I mean, that's what everybody thinks of. If you go over to our primary classes, if there's any depictions of Jonah, it's probably Jonah being spit up on the ocean, on the shore, or Jonah in the belly of the fish. But really, the fish is only mentioned four times in this book. What's Jonah about? Is it about the city of Nineveh, that great city God keeps calling it? More about that in just a few moments. Well, Nineveh's mentioned several times, but really only nine. Well, is the, is the book about Jonah? Jonah, his name is mentioned 18 times, not including the pronouns that de- designate him. No, I believe this book, first and foremost, is about God. Because when you look at the word God in all of its forms found in the book of Jonah 38 times in just 1,300 words, there is mention of God and what he's like and who he is and how he acts and how he cares about all people. The book of Jonah is about God. It's about the heart of God. And it's about asking the question, is my heart, is your heart like his? You know, sometimes we read Jonah from a New Testament perspective. You know, Jesus has already given us the Great Commission. We talked about that this morning. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Sometimes we ought to stop and read the book of Jonah from an Old Testament perspective. Before the Great Commission was given, what did God want the Israelites to know? What did he want them to understand? What did Jonah say to those people that was important for them to think about? God has concern even for the Gentiles. God has concern for all mankind. They needed to let that message sink down deeply into their hearts and minds. And so do we. What's the book of Jonah about? Quick outline. This is my favorite outline of the book of Jonah, not original with me. Chapter one, Jonah's in a fix. He runs from God and finds himself in a storm. Chapter two, he's in a fish because they threw him overboard and God prepared a great fish and it swallowed Jonah. And Jonah prayed from the belly of that fish in Jonah chapter two. In chapter three, he's in a revival. He finally gets serious and goes to Nineveh, that great city, and preaches the message that God told him to preach. And then in Jonah chapter four, he's in a rage. He's angry. He goes up on a, on a hillside outside of Nineveh and he sits down and he waits because he's just sure that these Ninevites that he's been preaching to, that they're going to repent of their repentance. They're going to do another 180 and God's going to finally destroy them. So he's hoping that that's going to happen while he sits and watches. World's worst missionary. Let's think very carefully about some lessons that we need to hear from the book of Jonah tonight. Number one. Jonah's running from God in chapter one. The Bible says, and go ahead, if you haven't already opened, go ahead and open to Jonah chapter one. Let's read for a moment. Brother Kyle read for us verses one through three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish and paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice how deliberate the Bible is in saying how deliberate Jonah is as he flees from God. It's not as if this was a knee-jerk reaction. It's not as if Jonah didn't think about what he was doing. No, Jonah just said, I'm not going. And so he gets into this boat, but God doesn't leave Jonah alone in verse four. But the Lord sent, some translations have the word hurled. That's the real, uh, that's a good translation of the Hebrew word. God hurled a great storm, a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. And the mariners were afraid. And every man cried out to his God. And so these mariners, as you read on, they start throwing the cargo overboard. They go down and they wake Jonah up because for whatever reason, he's sleeping. And then they'd start to cast lots to figure out why this storm has come upon them. The lots fall upon Jonah. They wake up Jonah again and they ask him, who are you? Why are you running away? What, what, what have you done to cause this storm to come upon us? And finally, Jonah admits, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a prophet. I serve the most high God and the men are dreadfully afraid and Jonah tells them that they need to throw him overboard if they want to survive and they pray not to their own gods at this point but as you read on in this chapter chapter one they start to pray to the true God to Jonah's God they throw Jonah overboard and God it says in verse 17 prepares a great fish which swallows Jonah and here's the question as we're reading Jonah chapter 1 that we ought to ask. What's it going to take to get Jonah to obey? What's it going to take for you to obey God's will? Look at what Jonah had advantage-wise. 
he had the advantage of God's clear word. It wasn't as if God was vague or unclear about what he wanted Jonah to do. Go to Nineveh, preach the message, and I'll even write your sermon for you, Jonah. You're not going to have to think very deeply or do a lot of cultural studies about the Ninevites to figure out how to relate to them. I'm going to tell you what to say. You just, get a, you just get over there to Nineveh and go and preach. That's all you've got to do. Jonah runs from that. What's it going to take to get Jonah to obey? A storm? You know, some of the storms we face in our lives happen and occur because of our disobedience. Because we're resistant to God's word. Sometimes the consequences of sin that we choose to practice enters into our lives. And one of the things that God hopes for you and hopes for me in the midst of our storms is that we'll look to him and we'll cry out to him and we'll seek his will once again. But that doesn't work for Jonah. What's it going to take to get Jonah to obey? How about this in verses 5 and 6? The sailors, the mariners, they suffer as a result of Jonah's sin. They're throwing their cargo overboard, valuable merchandise. They probably made their living and probably lost a lot of money as they were having to throw this cargo overboard in order to try to survive. You know, sometimes when people are addicted to a substance, sometimes the only way that, can, that people can get through to them is to have what's called an intervention where loved ones and concerned people in their lives sit around in a circle and they go around and the, the loved ones talk about how this, this person's addiction, this person's substance abuse has affected them. And by confronting what my sin has done to other people, that sometimes in cases will wake that person up and cause them to say, you know what, I really do need help. God's trying to intervene with Jonah. The suffering of others still doesn't work. Direct confrontation. Who are you, Jonah? Why are you running from your God? What have you done? And think about this. When Jonah finally told the truth about who he was and why he was running, the sailors, the mariners, believed him. And not only did they believe him, but they also believed in his God because who else could have done something like this? Who else could have created a storm like this? Direct confrontation. And finally, suffering the consequences of his rebellion. A great fish. I wonder if Jonah thought he was going to die when he was thrown overboard. I've wondered about that for years. I wonder what was going through Jonah's head. The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't say what Jonah thought was going to happen. We know the rest of the story. And so we say, well, of course they threw him overboard. I wonder if Jonah just thought that was going to be the end. No, God allowed Jonah to suffer and to deal with the consequences of his rebellion for a while. Why? Because God's not just interested in Nineveh, that great city over there that's full of wicked people. God's interested in Jonah, this man who is full of a hard-hearted, calloused attitude toward other human beings. And by the way, he had some pretty good reasons to be that way when you look at the Ninevites and the kind of people that they were historically. What's it going to take to get you to obey? What's going on in your life that you know God has spoken and said, you need to obey my will. What's it going to take to get you to obey? Second, look at Jonah chapter 2. Jonah prays. He's running from God in chapter 1. He's praying to God in chapter 2. And this is one of the most heart-rending, 
prayers in the entire Bible. One commentator said that Jonah, for the first time in a long time, was really honest with himself and honest with God in his prayer. I suspect Jonah probably hadn't been praying a great deal. What do you think? I suspect that once God told Jonah what his expectation was and Jonah decided he was going to not do what God desired, that Jonah didn't spend much time praying after that. But now that he's in the belly of this fish, by the way, the Hebrew word for the fish, D-A-G, dag, and that can just mean a sea creature. It, it doesn't tell us whether it was a whale. It doesn't tell us whether it was a fish. It just says dag. It's, it's kind of a generic term for a big animal that swims in the sea. So Jonah's in the belly of this fish, this animal, and he begins to pray. What kinds of things does he pray about? If you look at verses 1 through 6, there's definitely a sense of desperation. When I was a kid, I've been talking a little bit about cartoons today, it just occurred to me. But when I was a kid, I watched Pinocchio by Walt Disney. And my conception of what Jonah experienced was kind of shaped and formed as a young kid by Pinocchio. Because if you've seen that movie, Pinocchio and Geppetto, they get on this boat and, and they end up in the belly of Monstro the whale. And it's a big cavernous, you know, kind of like this auditorium, just a huge area with space. And, you know, the water kind of comes in and comes out. Not all that bad. I mean, you don't want to be in the belly of a whale, but not that bad. When you stop and think about what Jonah was probably experiencing, he describes seaweed wrapped around his head. He describes not being able to breathe. He describes going down, down, down into the depths of the sea, as we talked about this morning, to the very moorings of the mountains in verse 6. I suspect that what Jonah experienced during those three days was not being able to breathe, kind of like drowning. You know what the experience of drowning, you kind of imagine what it might feel like, how miserable it might be and frightening. Think about drowning for three days, not being able to take a breath because what air is there in the belly of the fish, and yet you're not dying. And so for three days, there's Jonah with seaweed wrapped around his head, compressed in this dark cavernous, this dark space, tight space, and for three days, the only thing he can do is cry out to God in his desperation. I believe that's what Jonah's experiencing. You know, sometimes it takes that kind of experience before we start to really, honestly pray to God. What's it going to take for you to pray and to confess what's wrong in your life to God? Notice again, there's a confession, especially as you look at verse 4 and verse 7. Jonah twice in this prayer mentions the temple, and that's fascinating. The temple comes up twice, and what Jonah is saying is, I realize now that I've run from God and I was wrong to do so, and I want to get back to where God is. I want to return to Him. As we grow in our spiritual lives, there's something very mature about being able to say, honestly and readily, I was wrong. If that's hard for you to do, if it's hard for you to say, I was wrong, probably need to think about our lives and examine ourselves and ask, are some of Jonah's attitudes present in me? You read this prayer of Jonah, 
a desire to be heard by God, to go to his temple. That's where the Jews thought of God as dwelling. That's where God said he would dwell among his people in a covenant relationship. And so a desire to be heard by God. Hear me, oh my God. I need help. I need mercy. I need you to save me. And by the way, in verses 8 and 9, he compares idols to God. Those Ninevites were idolaters. Those mariners that were on the boat in chapter 1, they were idolaters. But amazingly, it didn't take God as much effort to get those people to repent and to turn to God as it did Jonah. God had to work harder because of Jonah's hard heart on Jonah than he ever did on those Gentiles. But those who serve idols forsake their own mercy. Where can mercy be found? Where can salvation be experienced? Jonah asks as he concludes this prayer. They can only be found in Yahweh. That's what it says in verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who has mercy and salvation, nobody else. If you're going to find mercy in your life, if I'm going to find mercy and salvation in my life, there's only one place we can turn. And if we understand that we need God, that we need His salvation, if we understand that about ourselves... Why in the world would we not tell others who need to hear the same message about the same God? Salvation is of the Lord. Well, the Bible goes on to say in verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And then you get to chapter 3. The Bible says that Jonah is now speaking for God. Let's read chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You know, not everybody in the Bible gets a second chance. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, lied to the apostles in Acts chapter 5. They didn't get a second chance. Not everybody in the Bible does, but God blessed Jonah in his mercy with a second chance. Go to that great city and preach the message, he says, that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, verse 3, according to the word of the Lord. And Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And so Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, Let, uh, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Think about trying to evangelize the city of Katy. The city of Katy is area-wise, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly substantial. Think about trying to preach a message over and over, over a three-day period. It'd take you a while. That's the idea here. People have found fault with Jonah, the, the book of Jonah, and said, well, this is not accurate because it wouldn't take three days to walk across the city of Nineveh. Well, if you're trying to teach people and tell them, thus says the Lord, and if you're stopping and there, there are crowds in the marketplaces, it is going to take you a while. And so Jonah goes and he preaches, and then look at the reaction of the Ninevites in verse 4. The Bible says, excuse me, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on a sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And they repented and they did all these things. And the Bible says now in verse 10 of chapter 3, then God saw their works that they turned from their, their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. He did not do it. There are some lessons we ought to think about. Lesson number one is that God cares about the worker just as much as he cares about the work. When we talk about carrying God's message into a lost and dying world, 
I've said it before and I will say it again. It's not just about changing the world. It's about changing you and me. And in his providence, one of the ways that God transforms us to be more like Jesus is by saying a second time and a third time and a fourth time to us, go into that great city and preach the message that I give you. God changes us when we get serious about doing that. Secondly, God loves the great cities of the world, verse 1. Back in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, go to Nineveh, that great city. He calls it a great city. Large populations. Did you know that we're living right now in the first time that anybody knows about in world history when more of the world's population lives in urban environments than in rural ones? First time in history. Really hasn't been that long that's been the case. More people live in cities like Houston and Los Angeles and New York than live in farming communities across this nation. And that's true of the entire world. There are great cities all over our country, all over the world, and there are people who are lost in their sin in those cities. And God loves the great cities of the world. May God help us as his people to have a vision, eyes to see, and a heart of compassion that says, we love what God loves. We love the great cities of the world because God loves the great cities of the world. He's concerned about the teeming millions who don't know him. Oh, and by the way, I've been a missionary. I've served in a mission field overseas, lived over in Tanzania for a couple of years. I've been associated with missionaries for many, many years. Oftentimes, we do cultural studies, which is really, really good. We think about the soil, and we think about the people and the communities that we go to evangelize, and we do a lot of spade work and a lot of investigation. Where's a good place to plant a congregation? Where would be a good place to go and evangelize? I don't see any of this in Jonah. All God needed with those mariners in chapter 1 was a storm and somebody who finally told the truth, and those mariners believed in the one true God. All he needed in chapter 3 was a, a missionary who would finally go and just preach the message that he told him to preach. Cultural sensitivity, forget about that. He just told them their city was about to fall and the whole city repented. We just need to have confidence in the message of God and in hearts of love and compassion go into all the world and preach to the great cities. We need to be serious about that as a congregation. What lessons do you learn? God's plain message will produce success. He didn't have to embellish. He didn't have to alter. He didn't have to characterize or illustrate it. He just had to tell people what God said. God has provided salvation and hope for all mankind. The gospel is for all. And will God forgive us if we fail to tell people about that? What do you learn in Jonah chapter 3? God is merciful to those who turn to him. We really haven't ever gotten to Jonah's motive in this lesson up to this point. Jonah ran from God. When I was a kid, I thought it was because Jonah was afraid. That's not why he ran from God. He actually tells you in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2, why'd you run from God, Jonah? Jonah was displeased because he didn't want God to save those people. He didn't want God to show those people mercy. He didn't want God to turn away from what disaster he had already pronounced upon them. He didn't want those things. He hated those people, and again, he had good reasons to do so. Go read for your homework this week about the kind of culture that the Assyrians had, had cultivated for themselves. Nobody wanted to save the Assyrians. 
not in 765 B.C., but God will be merciful even to the Assyrians, even to these people that are so wicked when they turn to him. Isn't that good news? Because when I look at my life and I look at the kind of person that I've been, the kind of things that I've done, when you look at your life and you think about the things that you've done that displease God, the things that you've done that are sinful and wicked and unrighteous, isn't it a comfort to know that God, every single time we try to reach out to Him, every single time we try to appeal to Him for forgiveness, that over and over and over, 70 times 7 on to infinity, God forgives sin. If he can forgive those Ninevites and if he can forgive those people that nailed Jesus to the cross, maybe he can forgive me and maybe he can forgive you too. That's the hope of the gospel. God's merciful to those who turn to him. Look at Jonah chapter 4. Oh, by the way, Jesus mentioned Jonah and considered this to be a historically accurate account. Luke eleven thirty two, 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, Jesus said. And Jesus' point was, one greater than Jonah is here. I'm the son of God. I can do things Jonah could never do. You guys say that I have a demon. You guys say that I'm not from God. I'm not the Messiah. What more evidence do you need? Ninevites only had Jonah's sermon. Number four. Chapter four of Jonah, he's learning about God, this world's worst missionary. You would think from a missionary standpoint, Jonah would be overjoyed that the city repented, but no. The Bible says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. There's one paraphrase translation of the Bible that said it this way. This turn of events upset Jonah tremendously. Jonah was upset because the plan had changed. He preached a message of judgment and doom, and God, seeing the repentance of the Ninevites, relented. Jonah didn't want that. And so Jonah prays again. Look at verse 2. Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. See, this is new information now. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O God, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And God asks, is it right for you to be angry? It's been said that Jonah preached his, or prayed his best prayer when he was in the worst place. And he prayed his worst prayer when he was in the best place after a great successful preaching occasion in Nineveh. What do you learn about Jonah and his attitude? His anger is misplaced in the first place. God is still working on Jonah's heart. That's why Jonah doesn't end at the end of chapter 3. Because God wanted those Israelites in the ancient world to know that God cared about how they felt about other people. God cared about how those Jews, those Israelites, back in ancient times felt about the nations. He wanted them to love other people, love your neighbor as yourself, even the Gentiles. And God wants us to have those same attitudes, people that are different, people that don't come from my background and culture, people that I'm mad at. God wants us to remember how he feels about those who we would consider enemies. 
I believe Jesus had some things to say about that many times in his teachings. Notice as well that God starts to intervene once again. Look at all God does for Jonah. He sends his word in chapter 1. He sends a storm. He sends a fish to swallow Jonah. He speaks to the fish, and the the fish spits Jonah out. A second time, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. And then finally, when Jonah preaches and there's a great, uh, great repentance, now God's got to intervene yet again. And so God prepares a plant because Jonah is in a place where it's very hot. And so the plant grows up and provides shade, and Jonah's glad for a little while. And then God prepares a worm, and the worm eats the plant, and all of a sudden the shade is gone. And then God prepares an east wind that's really hot, and it blows on Jonah all day long. And Jonah's really miserable. What's God doing? Why is he doing all this in chapter 4? Because he's still trying to get through Jonah's thick skull. He's still trying to get through to his heart and cause him to understand I'm supposed to feel about people the way God feels about people. You're supposed to feel about people the way God feels about people. And if we don't, then you know what we end up doing? We end up making God in our own image. If I don't feel about people the way God does, and if I'm not striving to to see people the way he does, then what I'm doing is I'm worshiping a different God, a God who's made in my own image. Somebody said, you know that God's made in your own image when he hates all the same people that you hate. That's what Jonah wanted. A God who hated the Ninevites and wanted to destroy them. And what made Jonah mad was that this God, the one that he served, he loved the Ninevites. And he wanted those Ninevites to be saved. So God prepared these objects. And he taught Jonah one more time. And by the way, the book doesn't leave us with a conclusion about what happened to Jonah. All it leaves us with is a question when you get to verses 10 and 11. God says, Jonah, and the Greek word, in my New King James translation, it's got the word pity. The Greek word has to do with a feeling of concern. And he says, Jonah, tell me how this is logical. Your concern is all about this plant that grew up and then died. And if you can have concern about this plant... Shouldn't I, God, have concern over this great city, Nineveh, with all of these souls? And the question mark at the end of the book leaves you to wonder, what happened? But God has made his point. His point is, I'm concerned. And if I'm concerned about those people, you should be concerned. And the Israelites in 765 B.C. needed to hear that message. And the church of our Lord in 2020 A.D. needs to hear that message as well. Who in your life is God concerned about? And as his servant, what are you doing to get out of your comfort zone? What are you doing with your heart and your attitude and your actions to carry the simple plain, straightforward message of the gospel to those who need to hear it most. If God's concerned, shouldn't we be? That's the message of Jonah. And it's a haunting question because a lot of times we're thinking about how comfortable we want our lives to be and how easy we want things to be and we miss people who really need to know because their eternity hangs in the balance. 
Don't be like Jonah, the world's worst missionary. Be like Peter, who went and proclaimed and worked with and loved people that were different because there was brotherhood to be found in Christ. Maybe you're here this evening and you're not a New Testament Christian and you want to obey the gospel. It is simple. It is straightforward. It is plain. Jesus has died for you. He has made a way for you to be right with God, to receive cleansing and forgiveness of sins. And all you need to do to accept his offer of salvation is to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and to be baptized for the remission of your sins. When we do that, we are accepting God's offer of being a part of the new covenant. If you're ready to make that commitment this evening, or if you need to respond and you'd like to ask for prayers, heaven's invitation is yours while together we stand and while we sing.